here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Have you started thinking about your summer goals? Are you hoping for some accountability to help you stay motivated through the summer heat? Join Author Accelerator and the hashtag AmWritingPodcast for a free weekly writing challenge. The 2022 Summer Blueprint Butt in the Chair Challenge will include 10 episodes hosted by certified book coaches, Jenny Nash and KJ Delantonia. 
In each episode, Jenny and KJ will give you an actionable step to take to further along your manuscript or revision. You can also sign up for weekly reminder emails to help you stay on track. Each episode will include interviews with other experts across the publishing industry about their writing journeys, all to keep you inspired, motivated, and ready to write all summer long. Learn more and sign up for the challenge by visiting authoraccelerator.com slash writing. That's authoraccelerator.com slash writing. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks segment. Today we have two authors on the show with us and we'll be discussing their query letters, Kevin and Jacqueline. So first up is Kevin, who submitted his work to Cece. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you. And for our listeners, Kevin is Julie's husband. Julie has been on the show before, we critiqued her work. So it feels like a lovely full circle moment to have Kevin here as well. So Kevin, could you kick us off by reading us your query letter? Sure thing. Right, here we go. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, I'm a huge fan of the podcast, which has helped change our family's life. Your honest and engaging commentary helped my wife land her agent, and I'm hoping it can do the same for me. Please allow me to present The Most Beautiful Woman I've Never Met, a 91,000-word genre-blending adult romantic comedy. Fans of Rebecca Searle's In Five Years and Josie Silver's One Day in December will enjoy how the novel weaves light speculative elements into a tale of star-crossed love at first sight. The story's dual timeline chronicles the present and potential future of a disillusioned millennial who falls in love with the woman whose death has haunted his dreams. Stu Owens wanders aimlessly through his late 20s, unsatisfied with his mediocre job and high-maintenance, soon-to-be ex-girlfriend. He laments that the perfect woman, Megan, exists only in his imagination until he dreams about a plane crash that claims her life. Stu is shocked when he stumbles upon Megan's online dating profile and discovers that she's not only real, but very much alive. Effortless banter and mutual attraction transform their first date into a night neither one of them wants to end, but Stu's persistent visions hang like a dark cloud over their budding romance until he pushes Megan into the arms of another man. As the date of Megan's untimely demise draws near, Stu prepares one last desperate attempt to change the fate he has foreseen and regain the love of the woman of his dreams before it's too late. I read and write stories with a sense of humor. When I'm not working, revising my second manuscript, or helping my wife raise our three children in suburban Tampa, I can be found ravenously consuming podcasts, engaging with the hashtag writing community on Twitter, and cheering for my beloved Green Bay Packers and Duke Blue Devils. Thank you for considering my query. Please let me know if I may send you the full manuscript or answer any questions you may have. Awesome, Kevin. Thank you. Alrighty, so Cece, why don't you tell us what you thought of that? Thank you, Kevin, for coming on the show. I will not call you Mr. Julie, though that's how I think of you. And I mean that as a compliment because Julie's awesome. So I have to say, first and foremost, this is a perfect query letter. Like, clear hook, plot is well mapped out, escalating stakes, I get what the climax is, I get what the will he or won't he is, I understand the central conflict, I totally get why you chose these comps and why they make sense. So this is perfect. It's a perfect, perfect query letter. Because our purpose here is to poke holes and try to make things even better. I did want to share thoughts that I had that I don't know if they will actually be actionable feedback for you, but they might. So for example, I'm not sure if dream makes sense. I you used in five years, right? And that wasn't quite a dream that she had. She thought it was, but it was more of like a vision. And so I know that it might have happened when she was asleep, but 
since there's a psychic in the story anyway, I don't know. Maybe Dream isn't the way to go. Maybe she goes to a psychic. Sorry, not she. I keep thinking of women protagonists. Maybe he goes to a psychic and has a vision, like a guided vision, a guided meditation session. I don't know. Or maybe a dream does make sense. And then the other thing is, reading this, I thought, I wonder if there's enough pressure cooker situations going on. Like, there's there's one theme, which is him and her. And I, do, I wanted there to be like, family of origin drama, partnership drama at work, or anything other, any other kind of drama to really, really, really up the stakes. Now, that being said, it's hard to tell whether it will even be necessary based on a query letter, right? Like, you can only tell these things when you really read the pages. So take this with a grain of salt. It is a perfect query letter. There's only one note that is an actual note that you would have to change. Um, and we can edit this out if you'd like us to, but I am going to pick on you because it's me and you chose me. So, you know, this is your fate. You are not helping your wife raise your children. You are raising your children with your wife. Take out that helping with all the love. <laughs> that's very helpful. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's, that's all great feedback and I appreciate it. You know, the, you know, the in five years comp is one that I've used just because I think it's a little bit more popular. The, the other comp that I've used for the speculative side of the novel is You Were There Too by Colleen Oakley, which is more, you know, dream based than, than in five years is, is. But you're right. I mean, there is kind of a mishmash of it. I mean, basically, you know, the dreams are, you know, a big part of it, you know, in, in terms of the story, uh, although it's, you know, somewhat lucid dreaming and it's, you know, visions of the future. So it, it is kind of shades of gray there in terms of, you know, what you want to call it. But yeah, that's, that's good feedback. And then, you know, the, the other point is a fair one. I think, you know, after, you know, of course, this is probably like version 20 or 25 or whatever of, of this query letter. And, and after, you know, the retreat and the presentations both you and Carly gave, you know, during the retreat, this query letter used to go in a lot of different directions because the plot of the book does go in a lot of different directions. And so really, you know, I kind of took your advice from the retreat and really tried to distill it down into the central conflict. So there is a lot of other stuff going on, but, you know, I really tried to streamline the query letter just kind of based on the advice that you guys gave at the retreat. And I stand by that advice and I applaud you for, for doing that. It's not something that's missing. Like I said, this is perfect. I would take a look at the pitch copy for In Five Years because they do manage to incorporate her partnership track at work too, which just adds to the, tr and it's like three, three words they use or something like that. So maybe that could be helpful just to show that it's not monothematic. But again, sometimes we give advice like this isn't working. Here's what you should do. And sometimes we give advice like this is perfect, but you know, maybe if you want to do this, you could do that too. It's up to you. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Kevin, can you give our listeners an understanding of what's in those opening pages? Sure, thanks. So, you know, we start with our protagonist, Stu. He is at a bar for, you know, what we have down here in Tampa, kind of a pirate festival. Think of it as our version of Mardi Gras, but pirate-themed Gasparilla. And he's not particularly happy to be there. He was dragged there by his girlfriend. And, and we kind of start with him being a little bit grumpy about that. He kind of hangs out outside for a while to take a break, then goes back inside and finds her. She calls him over. And, you know, much to his chagrin, introduces him to a psychic that has you know, been invited to attend slash perform at the party. He is not the most you know, social creature out there. And, you know, he gets even more unhappy when she decides to, when his girlfriend decides to duck out and leave him alone with this psychic. So he really gets tense there. 
and they, you know, he tries to get away and go back to the bar, but she blocks his path and they have, you know, an interesting conversation in which she basically, you know, implies, if not flat out says that his girlfriend is not who he's supposed to be with and that he's going to meet the woman of his dreams fairly soon. He's not really happy about that either. And then, you know, finally his girlfriend returns from the ladies room and the psychic, you know, kind of makes her exit and leaves him with a little bit of an ominous tone on the way out. Awesome, Kevin. Thank you. Right, Cece, what did you think? All right, this is my favorite part. I love critiquing pages. So, super, super polished, just like the query letter. All the applause for tightening the scene, making sure the writing was flowing really, really well. I know this takes a lot of work, and I hope that you're really proud. I honestly felt like I was reading something that had been copy edited. Like, if I had to nitpick in terms of line notes, I would probably have like three things to say total. And usually I have like, here's 500 things that you could change. So it's, it's absolutely excellent, wonderful, wonderful quality. I do have a big picture note, and I would like you to take it with a grain of salt because it's very me specific. I adore unlikable characters. I really do. As long as they are vulnerable. And with Stu, he seems to be annoyed over minor things, not not even minor, but almost like annoyed over nothing, which is really tough given his gender. He's a guy and his age, late 20s. You see, it's fine for like in a man called Ave, for Ave to be a curmudgeon because his advanced age automatically makes it endearing and sweet, especially since the book starts with him like, I want to buy an iPad and I don't know what an iPad is. It's the same goes for women because society has conditioned women to be likable and pleasing. An unlikable woman is subversive and inherently interesting. But with Sue, who if I'm to, you know, if I'm correct, he's like a 28 year old white guy with an attractive girlfriend and a job. Like it's a little tougher to, to connect. And I'm not saying that you should change his personality. I'm saying that we need more context to add vulnerability to what is already there. So we need more. This is not about changing or taking away. This is about more. His struggles right now, they seem a little, hate to say this, a little boring, a little flat. His girlfriend got a boob job despite his protests because her boobs were already great. And now they're still even more great. Not really, you know, a serious problem, not really connecting with this human. You know, he'd rather be in a quiet night in instead of drinking and, and wearing a costume with his girlfriend at a party. Like, I get it. I'm a homebody. But again, again, Stu, I'm having trouble connecting to you. So to add to this emotional makeup... Oh, and before I get to that, and then to add to the challenge, I'm not super clear on how he feels about Sharon, since his emotions are pinballing all over the page, and I did mark that in my line notes, so you'll get to see it. I understand that he feels many, many different things, but I would like to have a better, clearer sense of what the conclusion in his superficial mind is, what he's telling himself. So that got a little mixed with his feelings about the night, because I'm super clear on how he feels about being there at the at the bar. So, you know, all in all, I think we need more vulnerability from Stu. We need to understand how he feels about about Sharon, because how he feels about Sharon will affect how we feel about her and about him. So I had an idea that I am willing to share, if, if you don't mind, to to add to the scene to maybe help with the vulnerability. So it starts with him like outside getting some air, right? And he's just alone. He's just like contemplating how they're different and how he would like to be home and she wants to be partying. And he's like, I'm 28. I don't want to be partying anymore wearing a costume. What if he actually went outside because he noticed that he missed a call from his mom and we see him anxious in trying to reach her. That would automatically make us curious since why would a 28-year-old guy be so anxious to call his mom? Is she in the hospital? Is he a parentified child? Something else. So, and when then he does reach his mom, she's on her way to Salem, Massachusetts with Greg. 
We don't know who Greg is, but clearly Stu's not happy about that. So now we're wondering, is Greg the stepdad, bad news boyfriend, deadbeat brother, someone else? I don't know. Stu says something like in a warning tone to his mom. Like, I thought we talked about this, you know, like in a sweet warning tone. But like, mom, I thought we talked about this. And and she wiggles out of the conversation, tells him that the, that he should stop by if he wants to, but hangs up before he can protest further. He gets a text from Sharon saying, come and come to the party. And now he's like telling himself, just focus on Sharon. You're here with your girlfriend. Like, like your mom cannot be your responsibility all the time. So automatically, like, we're, we're like feeling for him, right? Because there's a nagging voice in his brain thinking, should he go to Salem? What if his mom gets in trouble like she did back in August? We don't know what that means. We don't know what happened in August, but we're feeling for him because he's taking out a lot of responsibility and is struggling. So, and then when he does get to the party and he's in such a bad mood about the boobs and about the drinking and about all the things, then we're thinking, oh, you know, I get it, Stu, because you're really just, there are these big things happening in your life because there's something up with mom and Greg and whatever else is happening in Salem, Massachusetts. So then when the psychic makes a prediction about the woman who will like take over his life, essentially, he's going to be like, I'm done with women. Like my mom is giving me, my girlfriend is giving me problems. Like I'm going to have another woman. And maybe you could even be like ultra specific about what kind of psychic this is. So it's not just, you know, another psychic in another book. So for example, if, if the psychic is the kind of psychic who will tell people three things and she tells him, I don't know, she could tell him the thing about meeting the woman, obviously she could tell him a really cryptic thing, like something about you know, don't wait to go into the flower shops. The orchids won't wait for you, which will be kind of funny because it'll make him go into flower shops all the time. And, you know, that will be kind of humorous. And then the third thing could be, don't go to Salem. She needs to make her own mistakes and you can't protect her from that. And that's going to freak him out because clearly the psychic does have powers because how else would she know about Salem? I, again, this is just an idea to illustrate a concept. And the concept being, we need him to be vulnerable. Does not have to be a mom thing. Although, come to think of it, there aren't that many novels with mom's son angles, and that's kind of cool. And I'm not trying to, like, take over the psychic situation. I just felt that because her prediction was, this woman isn't the white woman for you, someone else is. And he kind of knows that already. We get that through his inner life. It's not very bombastic, right? Like, it's like, yep, we know that. So it would be kind of cool if there could be, like, another prediction, hence the flower shop, dumb idea, to keep us like looking for those clues and a prediction that shows us that the psychic does know her stuff. And I will shut up now. Before we go to Kevin, there has been a suggestion made that whenever you want to make an unlikable or whatever character vulnerable, give them a dog. So you could give him a sick dog that he would rather be at home looking after than being at this damn party and the psychic can say to him, your dog's going to be fine or something like that. So that's another thing. All right. Before we go to you, Kevin, Carly, you happened to read this because we had a little bit of confusion on the show. Was there anything you wanted to add about that? Yes, I uh, I was the one that messed up. I read both submissions today. Okay, so yeah, I had a few things since I since I did a bit of a deep dive. So one of the things I was thinking about was in terms of comps. So you had female author comps, and you are a man. So I was wondering if maybe you'd thought about like Nick Hornby or Jonathan Tropper or a male author writing in this category, because I think that is kind of what is unique about positioning you. So that was something I wanted to throw out there. And then in terms of the pages. 
So I see, I, I thought he was a little bit of a softy deep down. Like, I, I don't know, CC, I don't know if you thought maybe he wasn't, but I, in some ways, I think, I think that he was like on page, the second page of the, of the materials, I had some notes about, about thinking that he was a bit of a softy. And so anyway, I, I think maybe leaning into that a bit more, maybe if it didn't come out for, for everybody that has read it, but, but I thought he, I thought he had some softy moments and, and I really like CC's note about the psychic having another, not just revealing the romance angle, but also revealing another life angle. So I agree with Cece on that. Thanks, Carly. This is very me specific because I'm like really hard when it comes to male characters. Sorry. Also, I like the fact that you're only comping women. So we're disagreeing on a lot today. This is great for the podcast because people complain that you two agree too much. Okay, Kevin, we're opening the floor to you. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a lot to digest there. And uh, first of all, thank you for all the compliments. I'd say that, you know, especially in these early pages, they've been revised a lot to try and get the emotional calibration right to, you know, make him seem less, you know, curmudgeon, like globally grumpy, and really just trying to make it clear that he's not a grumpy guy. He's just grumpy with this situation. And you know, with Sharon, it is complicated. You know, uh, you know, I haven't necessarily personally experienced this because I've been happily married for almost 20 years. But, you know, they're at this point in their relationship where they've been dating for two years and it's not necessarily clear why they're still together, but there's really no catalyst for them to break up. And so they're in this kind of relationship purgatory where, you know, he, he's kind of, you know, she's you know, better than he deserves, I think, from from a girlfriend perspective, just in terms of you know, probably more superficially how she looks, but also, I mean, she is fun. You know, she is, so he's just not keeping up with her on the, on the fun train. So, you know, it, it's not that I think in earlier versions of this, he's come across too grumpy and beta readers are like, why are these people together? And it's like, no, they've, they've had a good relationship. They're just at this kind of fork in the road moment. And he's not a bad guy and she's not a bad person. They're just not necessarily right for each other. And so that's, that's gone through a lot, but I, I do like additional suggestions to make him, like you said, more vulnerable, less globally grumpy, because that's something that has been a constant struggle that I've tried to, you know, again, tease out through revision. You know, I do like the suggestions there. I do like the suggestions to beef up the psychic a little bit more. You know, again, she is somebody who does recur throughout you know, the novel later, Sharon's a character that doesn't go away. So, you know, all these people that we meet in this opening chapter, and uh, one of the earliest versions of the podcast I think I listened to was Bianca railing about introducing characters in the first pages that, that aren't going to mean anything or, or go anywhere. So both Sharon and the psychic do play into to the rest of the book. So, yeah, I like the ideas there to, to beef them out. And then it's interesting, you know, one of the other comps that I've used for this you know, I think maybe even been in the version that I originally sent, you know, to the podcast is I have comped the Rosie Project, you know, it's from a male protagonist rom-com. And that's, that's one of the questions I've always had with the query process is comps and not, you know, again, you've read five pages of the book, so not asking you to suggest comps, but really just more what it makes sense to comp. Because especially for a book like this, I call it a romantic comedy because, you know, it has a romance arc and I've written it in a way that I think is funny, you know, and it's got the, the traditional love story beats, but it's not super tropey like most romantic comedies these days are. So it's difficult to compare, like I said, on the speculative side in five years, and, and you were there too, really have always jumped out at me. But on the rom-com side, it's like, you know, do I comp 
the Rosie project because the male protagonist, or do I comp? Like I said, I think one day in December fits the vibe. Oh, Bianca's raising her hand there. Yeah, I, I wouldn't comp the Rosie project because even though it's written by a male author and it's a male protagonist, that's a neurodivergent character. And so people are going to think if you comp that kind of story that yours is neurodivergent, which is why I think Carly's suggestions of like a Nick Hornby or something would, would work better. And just something else I wanted to add there is when we're dealing with grumpy characters, we need to differentiate between you've got like the man called Uwe who's just generally a grumpy dude you know and then you've got characters who when we meet them are situationally grumpy because something at that particular moment in their lives has made them grumpy and I think what you're wanting to do with this character is just show he's situationally grumpy because I feel like otherwise it becomes this woman has to save him from being a miserable bastard which is not what you you wanted. Cece what do you think? I you know, to, to Kevin's point, I think you raised two points that I'd like to respond to. One is, if you want to make him globally grumpy, I don't mind that at all. I think it's super interesting. I love grumpy people. I just need to understand why they're grumpy. And that, and those reasons, for my taste, need to make them vulnerable. Like, there has to be vulnerability. It cannot be first world problems, because unfortunately, I'm not going to keep on reading. But again, very me-specific. So I don't think that you necessarily have to make him less grumpy. I just think you have to add. Like I said, it's about adding, not subtracting. And then the second thing is you said, you know, he thinks she's too good for him. That's not coming across. There's one line that makes reference to like how she's not just a knockout. She's also fun and blah, blah. It's not clear. When you see my line notes, I hope you'll understand why. If not, please reach out to me. The emotions that he feels towards her are pinballing right now. And a great way to fix that is to add his best friend whatever the dude's name is, who is like, you are so lucky to have Sharon. Sharon is a catch because that immediately positions how the world sees her. And you know how humans are. It's not a man thing or a woman thing or a non-binary person thing. It's humans are, if my best friend thinks that I'm lucky to be with this, this person, I'm automatically like, oh, I should be grateful. You know, like this is impressive. My friends are jealous of me, right? So, or envious or whatever in a good way. So I, I think that your pages are, I know your pages are really, really strong and you have a really cool hook, a really cool concept. I love your comps personally. I wouldn't mess with them. And I actually think that your writing style is, is quite similar to Rebecca, whatever her name is, because I know the titles, but not the authors and the world's biggest hypocritical act here. But yeah, I, I think him being grumpy is fine, honestly. Kevin, you have two minutes left. Yeah, no, great. I appreciate everything. Yeah, I look forward to seeing, you know, the <laughs> the notes in, in writing that I can try and, uh, but there's a lot to take away here. Like I said, I appreciate all the comments. It's just, you know, it's interesting because, like I said, it, it, you kind of go out in the, the query world and you, and you wonder, like I, said, I listened to Bianca's interview with Jessica, you know, earlier this morning, actually, and, you know, talking about how you know when you're close. And it's like, is it the query letter? Is it the pages? Is it the premise? Or is it just that querying is just hard right now? That might just be what it is. So I'm looking forward to, to kind of, you know, diving into the feedback and making some of those subtle tweaks. But but I do appreciate all the kind words. I really, I, I really like the setup. And I think we need more men writing rom-com and, and writing the commercial space. So I would, I would definitely want to, I would definitely want to see it. Well, great. I will send it to you. <laughs> Thank you. All right, that was it from Kevin, and now we have Jacqueline. Jacqueline, welcome to the show. Will you read us your query letter? Sure, thank you so much for having me. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, 
I'm a regular, aka obsessive listener of the podcast and cannot thank you all enough for taking the time to create it and the many classes and webinars you offer. I'm submitting to Carly because your manuscript wish list has book clubs slash women's fiction, and I hope you will consider representing my novel, All In, which is a working title. Complete at 75,000 words, it's The Bookish Life of Nina Hill by Abby Waxman meets Peacock's Joe versus Carol, exploring how much a woman will risk to save the big cat sanctuary she loves and what happens when she realizes she's gone too far. Cassidy, the executive director of a struggling big cat sanctuary, believes nothing is more important than her animals and regularly makes poor financial decisions to improve their lives. Stubborn, fiercely independent, and laser-focused, she's unwilling to see the bigger picture, that running the sanctuary the right way involves more than top-of-the-line animal care. Thanks to a backstabbing move by her former boss, Cassidy's up against an impossible deadline to get the rest of the sanctuary up to code and needs a lot of money fast. When a sexy stranger recruits her for a high-stakes poker game, it feels like divine intervention from the cat gods. But she loses big and not only ends up further than she's ever been from her financial goal, she also discovers a scheme that adds blackmail to the list of things she'll never be able to fix on her own. So she does the one thing she swore she'd never do, ask her mother for help. With her mother and a small gang of co-workers at her side, Cassidy discovers that her love of animals doesn't have to come at the expense of loving people and that trusting the right ones is the only way to save her sanctuary and herself. A lifelong animal lover, I became interested in the plight of big cats in America when my sister worked as the assistant director of the National Tiger Sanctuary. To ensure the animal care in this novel was authentic and of the highest standards, I worked personally with Redacted of Redacted Rescue. I'm an advertising copywriter, a member of WFWA, and a champion of the Oxford comma. My stories have appeared in Fearsome Critters and the Bookends Review, as well as the Bookends Review Best of 2019 print anthology. When I'm not writing, I can be found hanging with my three rescue cats and single pup, trying to convince my husband we need more animals. I've pasted my first five pages below. Thank you for your time and consideration. Content note, while no animals are harmed in this story, they do have heartbreaking backgrounds that are mentioned. Can I send the full manuscript? Awesome, Jacqueline. Thank you for that. Yeah, the struggle is real to constantly convince husbands we need more animals. Right, Carly, what was your take on that query letter? I'm currently trying to convince my husband we need a second dog. So I'm all here for, for more pets in the house. Thank you so much for being here. We're so, so glad that you are here. Okay, I'll start at the top. So I would take out your brackets working title. We assume that all titles are working titles. You just don't want to show any like ambivalence or insecurity, right? So I would just commit to the title. Even if it's a working title, just you don't need to tell us that it's a working title. I would suggest, while this is in my very favorite font, which anybody that follows me on social media knows Garamond is the best font, I would say instead of italicizing the comps, I would probably also capitalize them as well because when you copy and paste things into your email browser format, sometimes things just get lost. So I would probably just capitalize those titles as well instead of instead of italicize. Okay, so my big note here, and I'll also say your author bio was great. I just love that like personal touch, but also Women's Fiction Writers Association. Like you have the balance of, of everything you need there. So just in the middle section here, I think we need to focus on two things. So the animal stakes and the human stakes. I kind of see these as two separate tracks, but also they they will intersect as well. But I think really this this is the type of book that will appeal to animal lovers. And I think that's a big hook and a big part of this project, especially once we get to those opening pages, like it's what it's about. And then we also need the personal stakes. And so... Cassidy, our executive director, she is up against this task of, you know, there's no money. And so it seems really that her personal goal is also tied to the 
to the animal's goals. Whereas I think we also, and maybe there, maybe there is, and, and it's just not in the query, so you can correct me, but also making it really clear, like what her personal goals are in a way that are connected, but maybe not fully attached to the cat sanctuary goals. Because I think that will just help you just have like a couple threads going where it doesn't seem so singularly focused and just is multidimensional for a novel, like in order to tell us 75,000 words about something, right? We need like a few layers here. And so this is really laser focused on the animals, whereas yes, obviously animal lovers are going to be gravitating towards this, but also it is a general market kind of book, right? And so I think we just want to make sure that we also have those strong women's fiction hooks and and part of the other angles. The other thing I didn't know, again, maybe there's a reason to this, and I didn't know specifically why, but you have the sexy stranger recruits her for the high stakes poker game. It feels like divine intervention. I kind of want to know why poker, and maybe you don't need to tell us in the query letter itself. And, and you know, I, I would just love to hear your thoughts on this, but like why you landed on poker game, because there's so many obviously other ways to gamble or get money. And I'm just curious about whether how the character got to that point of like, this is the be all end all. Um, and anyway, I was also thinking like, what about like horse racing or something? Like, could we bring it back to animals? Does it have to be poker? Those were just some thoughts that I had. And maybe that could be a little bit more clear in the query letter itself. A really small word choice note. And really, I only had one here. You have with her mother and a small gang of co-workers. I wouldn't use the word gang. I would use word crew. So I would just make a word choice change there. Awesome, Carly. Thanks. All right, Jacqueline, do you have any questions or replies to that? Yeah. So first of all, thank you so much. The big women's fiction, like emotional journey aspect of Cassidy is, is realizing she's always been so laser focused. Like she doesn't have any humans in her life. So there is a bit of a love triangle where she starts to let people in. She reconnects with her mother, which is kind of a big vein through the whole thing. And poker has been a huge part of her life. She grew up in Vegas with her mom, which is part of the reason she has a rough relationship with her mom. I just already felt like this was getting kind of long. So I wasn't sure what to be putting in here and what should not. It could be really small. It could even be like a line you add, like comes, she comes from a family of gamblers. You know, it could just be like an itty bitty line that just like gives us a little bit more context into that. But I love that. Yeah, she grew up in Vegas stuff. But yeah, it's getting, we don't want to add all of that, but just a one liner, like, you know, coming from a family of gamblers, comma, blah, 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 you know. Awesome. Thank you. Any other questions there, Jacqueline, before we discuss Um, your opening pages? Yeah, just one. I kind of felt like I had a lot of endings. Like I pasted my first five. Thank you. Here's my content note. Can I send the full manuscript? Like, was it feeling too much at the end? Or is that working? So I think it's, I'm all for people just using the economy of space to their advantage. (laughs) So, you know, there's not really Mm -hmm. a, a way to do it any differently, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's totally fine. And I like that you added the content note. I think some animal lovers or, you know, people that are more sensitive to these types of topics would want to know the content note. So I think all of that is fine. It's not, you know, super smooth and sexy, but like not everything has to be and that's okay. Okay, thank you. Alrighty, Jacqueline, will you tell our listeners what's in those opening pages? Sure. So we open on Cassidy nervously flipping through a safe space sanctuary application and noting that she's out of time. But then her intern, Mitch, radios he needs help with the chimp who is losing his shit again. And we find out that while it is a big cat sanctuary, Cassidy has never turned down an animal in need, which is an altruistic quality her board doesn't love. Cassidy jumps into a beat-up golf cart and heads down pathways in dire need of paving, noting she just can't bring herself to spend money on things that don't directly benefit the animals. 
We learned that this is now a major issue because she was expected to secure this safe space status this year. And if she doesn't make these improvements, the city will close the sanctuary. She has to push it out of her mind as she gets to the scene where Cookie, the chimp, is antagonizing the lions in the next enclosure. And trying to help, Mitch ignores the many safety protocols Cassidy has put in place and accidentally lets Cookie out. They chase the chimp to the top of a nearby storage shed, only to discover that the roof is rotting and the chimp is in serious danger. Cassidy tells Mitch to be a distraction while she climbs onto the roof to try to get Cookie back down to safety. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, Carly? All right. Okay. So I I think you're doing a lot of really, really subtle things really, really well. I I felt that Cassidy was so alone in her endeavors, but you didn't say like she's all alone, you know? You're just you know, you have her flipping through this this sanctuary book, you have her, you know, with a coworker who just doesn't get it. And I think a lot of women and your target audience, you know, women readers will feel like women often feel like they have to do everything themselves or in order to do it well, in order to do it right, they have to do it alone. And so I think you I think you did that really well and really subtly. So bravo to that. Yeah, and again, a lot of really subtle things like the, the, the golf cart not starting, you know, is just like a sign of her just trying to kind of chug through this, trying to just make do with what she can. But eventually we know this is all going to blow up. And so I think all of these really subtle layered things like having an assistant or an intern that like doesn't know what he's doing, like all these things we know we're going to blow up. Also, when you have the mom call, she silenced the call and groaned, but like she knows she has to answer it next time. And, but we're all on a mission, right? We're on a mission to get this chimp back in back in his cage. So in terms of the setup and the construction and everything you were trying to do behind the scenes, you did that all really, really, really well. And so my only main note here is just thinking about whenever we open a book with a sense of danger, one of the things we have to balance is do we know enough about these characters or animals to feel invested in the chance that something doesn't go well like what happens if this chimp dies what happens if something happens to mitch obviously like cassidy right like what happens to these characters and when we don't it happens more frequently with thriller authors or domestic suspense or anything like that but when we don't know our characters very well yet getting invested in their danger and in a life and death situation is sometimes hard and so i think that would be my only note is just to i just wasn't sure if your if your intentions were full-on danger like are we supposed to think that somebody's going to die, somebody's going to get hurt, or you know what I mean? Like what the stakes are here for this moment, because I really like that it's intense. And as I said, you did so many things well here. But that's kind of what I want you to speak to a little bit is what level of danger are we are we talking about here? Because I assume if like this is a life and death situation, like she'd have a vet she could call or something like that to come, you know, tranquilize or whatever, you know, if it was a life or death situation. So I would just love to hear you speak a little bit to, to that. Sure. Yeah, I don't, I wasn't thinking of it as like a super intense, like, you know, like the next page, she kind of gets like, oh my gosh, there's a tour group coming. Someone's gonna take a picture of me on the roof with this chimp. And like, that's not going to be good. Like there's like some like lighthearted humor in there. It's more about just this shouldn't have happened. We have to get him back in. And there is a light danger element, like the board cracks and she actually kind of partially falls through and hurts her leg, but hurts her leg, not, you know, death or anything. Yeah. Yeah. That's the hard thing about having like a certain number of pages is maybe on the next page, the tone changes and that sort of thing. So maybe even mentioning early on, like when she's, and maybe I missed it, maybe you did, but mentioning in the, in the opening 
page or when she's flipping through the sanctuary, like she, the sanctuary book that she knows she only has 15 minutes until the school bus arrives or something like that. Like having a pressure cooker cap on that time might also help that situation. And, and I wasn't sure if I I started second guessing myself at one point, I was like, is this lighthearted humor? Like, is it physical comedy or is it danger? And, and so I was, I was trying to figure out at one point I was like, oh yeah, it's physical comedy. And then I'm like, wait a minute, like maybe this is really serious and maybe it is danger. So um, maybe it was just my interpretation, you know, was just going one way or the other. So I just want to be sure like what your intentions were and then maybe executing that. So I, yeah, I think that mention of the school bus on the way a bit earlier might help. Carly, can I just ask, in terms of her opening, in terms of getting to know the characters, becoming invested in them, etc., are you, you know, having found out where this goes, would you suggest she perhaps begins earlier or now that you know and would keep reading, are you comfortable with where she's she's begun? I think it definitely begins in the right place because there is this moment of intensity. We're at financial rock bottom. And and as I said, I, I really get the sense that she is alone in her endeavors. So I, I think it's I couldn't imagine it starting in a different place because I think that I think that it's checking all the boxes in that sense. Awesome, Carly. Thanks. Was there anything else you wanted to add before we open to Jacqueline? That's everything. Jacqueline, go ahead with your questions. So do you think maybe just removing the danger element and versus like they're not worried about him necessarily falling, but more worried that like the tour group is coming? So it is just that aspect and there is no like, is he going to get hurt? It's just like, oh, we have to get him back in his enclosure. Potentially, Would yes. Clear it up yeah, yeah I, I think potentially, yes, because you are the architect of this drama, right? And so you have to think about how you want the reader to feel. Do you want the reader to feel scared? Do you just want them to feel that time crunch? And if we try to do too many things, then the reader just doesn't know what you, the architect, are trying to help them navigate. You know what I mean? So I would, I would say potentially removing the danger element, but increasing the time crunch. So th- that would probably probably be a little bit more successful but uh, but I liked that it was you know there, there was some drama here you know I think women's fiction tends to sometimes err on the side of not enough intensity and having this external thing going on with the animals and and all of that it, it would set it apart and, and like compared to other women's fiction I've seen awesome thank you in terms of like hello, the light Kitty. sorry I... oh. I'm seeing a cat <laughs> in the background hello oh this is Zara hi Zara <laughs> sorry sorry Jacqueline carry on I'm easily distracted no <laughs> in terms of like the the light nod like I'm trying to start building there's a little bit of contention with the mom relationship was like that call kind of ignored their working or am I just trying to load too many things happening? no no I I thought that was definitely working the only note so my notes that I made were nice external pressure moment like that's what I wrote down and you also had it like I think when she's driving in the golf cart when she you know had other things going on so it was a nice external pressure right like we have the internal mm-hmm. pressure that's happening and then that was a nice external pressure the only thing I couldn't figure out what the meaning was was of the song so I'm assuming that song comes back later <laughs> as a sense of like purpose but I was really like hmm, Frankie Valley's I love you baby is the is the ringtone I guess Yes, I think that that comes through. So I was like, I wonder what it yeah. is about that song. Yeah, it, it comes back and it plays like a part throughout the throughout the novel. Oh, I like that. We're always saying we should be littering our work with like little sprinkles of glitter or, or breadcrumbs. And, and this is the kind of way to do that kind of thing. Jacqueline, any other questions for Carly? I don't think on the pages so much, but back onto the query letter, like if I just adding that one line about the gambling, does that to you hit enough of her arc like I want to make sure it feels like 
I'm trying to, I don't know if I have to mention like the, the love triangle, but also like the, her kind of bonding, interacting with people better part. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. So yeah, I would definitely mention the that that one line I said about uh, growing up in Vegas or coming from a family of gamblers or some subtle line like that would be great. Honestly, there, the fact that you use the word sexy, like sexy stranger to me was just like, there's a romance, you know, it really just takes one word like sexy to be mm, there's romance here. You know what I mean? So in terms of like economy of word, $10 words, there's not another word in the English language in terms of like in a query letter where it can be like, mm, there's some romance going on other than that word, right? So that word does a lot of work for you, which is great. You don't expand on that other than that, though. All we get is like when a sexy stranger and then you get into that. And then the last paragraph is about the mother. And obviously, this is all about the sanctuary. So I I would say a little bit more about if if that relationship or you mentioned a love triangle is more central to this, then something else other than just sexy stranger is probably needed. But as I said, like sexy stranger tells me there's some sort of rendezvous, some sort of flirtation. You know, I, I get that from that word. Awesome. Yeah. The love triangle is like tertiary in terms of the, the books. I wanted it to be there, but very subtle. Only other thing I had, how are you feeling about the comps? So I actually haven't read either of those comps, which is kind of why I didn't comment on them. So okay. I don't have a lot of frame of reference for them. I usually always look up the comps to kind of see what, they, what they're about, because if I, especially if I don't know, but Joe versus Carol, I'm looking this one up. Okay. This is a TV show. So that's actually maybe. a TV show. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, this is like, a, this is, this is the comedy about the the Tiger King thing, isn't it? Yes. Okay. Okay. And then, okay. And then Bookish Life of Nina Helm. That was quite a popular book. I think it did very well. I saw that everywhere. I also didn't read it, but I know tons of bookstagrammers were raving about it. Yeah. My, my issue with that comp is when like books about books and books about writers, books about libraries, like bookish books are kind of their own subgenre. So that one, I don't think did as much for me in that in the context of like is that a comp for this book no is it a comp for your audience probably which is i'm assuming why why you picked it but i i think you could probably i think you could probably find another more animal centric book because i do find that the animal part of this is probably the stronger the strongest part or a more of a protagonist comp like is there a character that like really reminds us of cassidy or an author comp, you know, for fans of blank, you know, like if you're a fan of whoever wins fiction author, then you would like this, you know, like using a comp more like that might be helpful here just to kind of say, I mean, I'm writing in the same space as blank author. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Alrighty. So Jacqueline, thanks so much for joining us. For our listeners, if you want to submit to Books with Hooks, go to the website, theshitaboutwriting.com. There is a Books with Hooks tab and you can submit there. We actually open to new submissions. And if you've revised old work that perhaps wasn't chosen for the show, feel free to submit that as well. All right, let's go to today's guest. We're beyond excited to announce that the second The Ship No One Tells You About Writing virtual retreat will be run on September 24th and 25th from 9.30am to 5.30pm Eastern Time. We have 18 hours of jam-packed, amazing content lined up for you, featuring writers, coaches and editors at the top of their game. Now here are the 13 speakers we have lined up. 
Jesse Q. Satanto, who is the author of Dial A for Aunties, Jill Santopolo, who is an author and an editor, whose book was chosen for the Reese Witherspoon Book Club pick. We have Mark Tavani, who's Vice President and Executive Editor at GP Putnam Sons. We have Lee Stein, who is an author, cultural critic, and book development expert. Alka Joshi, who has written The Henna Artist, which was also a Reese Witherspoon Book Club pick. We have Claire McIntosh, who's the multi-award winning author author of I Let You Go and numerous other books as well. We have Jane Green, who really needs no introduction. Matt Bell, who wrote How to Write and Rewrite a Novel in Three Drafts, who's also the author of the novel Appleseed. We have Elizabeth Gassman, who was an assistant editor for Little Brown and who is now an independent editor. We have Uzma Jaladadin, who also needs no introduction on this podcast. Laurie Grassi, who's a freelance book editor and former senior editor at Simon & Schuster Canada. Andrea Bartz, who's latest book, We Were Never Here, was also a Reese's Book Club pick, and Courtney Mom, who again needs no introduction on the podcast, but who wrote before and after the book deal. So bookings are now open. Please go to The Shit About Writing, look at the virtual retreat page, and claim your spot. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast-track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. 
Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word the more writers we have signed up the better the matches will be hi everyone welcome to the show it is femi from the book alert i am back again i hope you do not get tired of me because i'm very much enjoying being part of this podcast and for today's author interview segment i am joined by poet former attorney and northwestern university mfa graduate tara m stringfellow she is the author of the debut novel memphis a book I read a few months ago that had characters that have stuck with me ever since. And Memphis was also a Read with Jenna book club pick. Welcome to the show, Tara. Thank you all so much for having me. I appreciate it. So Memphis is roughly 250 pages long, but it's packed with so much. And I read that you have lived in numerous countries and cities from Italy to Ghana, but you chose to write about your hometown, which is Memphis. And my knowledge of Memphis is quite limited. It's limited to music, so the blues, and of course, Martin Luther King. But what were your aims when you were writing Memphis? What did you want your readers to feel? What did you want them to think when they had read that final sentence of the book? That's a great question. I hope everybody called the mama after, or if they don't have a mama, they called the auntie or the sister, the best friend. And they asked them, you know, how they doing? How they holding up? How's life? You know, and what can I do for you? That's what I hope. I hope black women everywhere got a bit more respect after reading my book. That's what I hope. And it's interesting that you said that because this book is about three black women. And I read that some of the characters in this book are loosely inspired or loosely based on some of your family members. And of course, it is set in your hometown. Is there some kind of extra pressure that comes with writing a story that is set in a real place, a real place that is so close to home, and it is loosely inspired by people of your family? Is there extra pressure that comes with that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to answer that question. I feel as if there's always pressure to write something beautiful. For me as a poet, every line, every sentence of mine has to sing. Structurally, the meter of it, the actual sound of it. So for me, I construct my world based on that standard alone. How can I write a better, truer sentence that's ever been written before, that's more painful 
more tragic that gets to the meat of it. And that'll break a man. So that's how I, that is literally how I conduct my sentence structure. How can I break a man? If Hemingway was still alive, I'd want him to read this and go to a bathroom and cry for a weekend, knowing he couldn't do something like a black woman could. So that's the standard I have. So it's rather high, right? Right three times better than any white man in the Western canon has ever done. But it's also very fun to do because I know that is it is very much possible, right? Like Phyllis Wheatley, I believe, is such a greater poet than Lord Byron. She was published in Britain, thank y'all, because no one in America thought that a black woman, especially a slave woman, could even write, let alone write perfect iambic pentameter Elizabethan and Italian sonnets that she did. Uh, she was just a genius. <laughs> she just happened to be a black woman and a slave. So that is the standard for me in which I write. Uh, my family personally is very accepting of what I write. I don't believe that I cast any family member in a negative light, and I would never. I think uh, you handle that family business in, inside the home. <laughs> if it, uh, so I, I definitely don't embarrass nobody in my writing. So, yeah, um, and as far as pressure for Memphis, again, my city is the most beautiful on earth. So I knew this book had to be the most beautiful <laughs> on earth, and that maybe that is a bit of pressure. But it was also so much fun to do. This is my first attempt at writing fiction. I've never written a short story. I just wanted to have some fun with it. See if I uh, could write the next great American novel. And it was a great book indeed. I'll tell you that now. I've spoken about this book with a few of my friends. And I think even a couple of them came to see you in London when you were around in London. And they loved the book as well. Just very quickly touching on the family members. Did they know that? that you were writing this book and it was loosely inspired by the family? Did they get a chance to have a look at it before it was out on the market? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so my father is my first reader. I send him everything I write before my agent or my editor reads it. I send it to him to look at. We've always had that sort of relationship. He's a poet. I trust him with my words and my work more so than I've trusted Anyway, I, I've told him what I want the idea for the second novel to be, and he's sworn to secrecy, but my editor doesn't even know. So he's always encouraged my writing. And unlike the mother in the book, Miriam, my mother, too, has always encouraged my poetry, my writing. They encourage me to go abroad and to write and to push out books. They understand that that's the life of a bohemian. That's the life of a Black Lives Matter poet that I'm privileged enough, I speak several languages to go to these countries and to live. They said, we paid for Northwestern, girl, you better. And I went to Northwestern twice, actually, for my undergraduate degree in English and African American studies. And then again, in 2017, for my master's in creative writing in both fiction and poetry. And so they said, well, we educated you. Go off. You know how to speak Italian and speak Spanish. Girl, just don't get lost. You know, we're an embassy at. Call us if you need anything. We love you. My parents are very supportive. I'm very, I'm a blessed woman. I sit here today very blessed. And family ties, family dynamics, that is a major, major theme in this book. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But you spoke a little bit about Miriam, who is one of the characters in this book, which leads us quite nicely into my next question. Because although that there are 
quite a few events that take place in Memphis. To me, it is very much a character-driven novel. It is a multi-generational drama, which is one of my favourite types of books. When I think of multi-generational dramas, I think of Homegoing by Yagi Asi, definitely one of my favourite types of books. But how did you go about creating each character's voice? Because from a reader's perspective, when we are reading multi-generational books, we want to ensure that the voices don't mesh or merge into one another. Um, We want to ensure that each character has its own distinct personality. How did you go about creating each voice? I just knew they had to be distinct people. They were different people. And so they had to be different people on the page. My professors at Northwestern for the my master's in fine arts were amazing at grilling us, at rewriting something from a different point of view. They, I would write something in class and they would say, okay, we'll write it from the point of view of the dog in the room. And we, and you have six minutes to do so. You know, I've been trained to write and to write well. And so I just, I knew every character is a human being. Like, you know, there's no, even if we look alike in a family, and sometimes act alike, sometimes have the same mannerisms. We're not the same people. <laughs> you know, we have different voices. We talk different. We'd be saying different, you know, having different reactions to things. So I had to make sure they did the same thing. So as a writer, I think it's the best advice I've ever been given was from my professor, Dr. Juan Martinez at Northwestern. And he told me to make your villains make good choices and to have your heroes and heroines make bad choices. And that just means to make a three-dimensional person, right? Because we, in our lives, make mistakes. There's there's no completely bad person out there. Well, Tucker Carlson can go kick rocks for all I can right now. He's causing folk the shade of me to get killed in grocery stores in this country, slaughtered. So, you know, white supremacists in the Republican Party can go kick rocks. But other than that, there's no, uh, other than them white folk, there's no completely evil people I know <laughs> in my day to day. And so I just tried to have my book reflect that. I can see you laughing at me. I know this is on audio, but we have a Zoom and I can see you laughing at me. But that's true. I mean, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. I, I had to. That was That was too easy to dig at them. Too easy. No, because obviously I am in the UK, I'm British, and sometimes we do feel so far removed from some of the things that are going on in the US. And that's not to say that racism is not an issue over here. But sometimes when I when I speak to my African-American friends who are also bookstagrammers and they tell me the things that they go through on a day-in, day-out basis, I'm lost for words. Last week, someday last week, uh, maybe a week and a half ago at the most, there was a grocery store in Buffalo and some white boy drove in his car for miles, loaded up with guns just to kill folk who are black. He went to a black part of the city to a store he knew black folk would be frequenting and he gunned him down. And folks say that there's no racism in this country, that it's over, that we should just get over it. Why are we always talking about slavery? Lord Jesus, I had to write this book, even though there's no political moment really in the book. No one's talking about politics. I don't have a political conversation at hand in the book. I don't really like to talk about politics. That's why. So I didn't put it in there. But it's definitely every single word of it is a political statement. It's saying that black women have always made this country great, specifically Southern black women 
women, black women who are dark skin, black women who are well, on welfare, they still work and send their kids to school and tuck them in at night. And no black woman I know is raising her kids with any sort of hate like that in the home. We don't act like that. We don't go into grocery stores or churches killing folk. Oh, this country. Uh, I feel a kind of way. Thankfully, I leave next week. I'm on this weekend, actually. I'm going to Italy for the summer to write the second novel. I need to get away. I love this country, but Lord Jesus, when will it love us, huh? So essentially, would you say that this book is a love letter to African-American, to, to black women? And uh, you, you just said that you're going to Italy to write your second book. Are you thinking of perhaps writing a book that's not set in the US? Or is that always going to be your focal point, your focal setting? I'm an American Southern Delta writer, so I'll always write Southern Black stories. That's who I am. I'm never going to write y'all a sci-fi book set on Mars. Sorry. <laughs> like, that's not me. I write from what I know. I know the South. I live here. I'm talking to y'all from Memphis, from a neighborhood in North Memphis that's historically Black. <laughs> so I live, I live it. I live this life. So I'm always going to really write. I'm not going to say maybe Memphis specifically. I might get a bit bored always having a book set in a city. I'm a country girl too. I like the country. And my family's from Memphis, but we're also from Alpar like the South. So, you know, my granddaddy from Georgia, my other granddaddy from uh, Arkansas. So <laughs> picking cotton. So I have a rich Southern and then Delta history. You know, there is something about being a Delta rider, about being a rider when I say Delta on the banks of the Mississippi. So think Twain, think Faulkner, Eudora Welty, Joyce Carol Oates, Grisham. These are my neighbors and colleagues. And <laughs> so I, and I like it. I like us. Like we do, we have, there's a Southern Gothic feel, I think, to all of my writing and poetry. And I always want to keep that. So even though I do write abroad, I write abroad because I get, I'm sick of always being afraid to go to a grocery store in America. Like I wish I could stay in this country all the time. And I have to deal with some of these things. But honestly, I know I'm not going to get gunned down in in Cuba. <laughs> you know, like, I, I know I don't have to deal with blatant racism in a Cuban restaurant. Everybody black. <laughs> you know, I don't have to deal with racism in Ghana. They have black presidents all the time. <laughs> like, <laughs> they also have free health care. So, you know, there are other better places, unfortunately, in this world than my country. I go where I like to be treated well and respected. And so I just need a break sometimes. You know, I didn't also grow up in America. I spent the first seven years of my life in Okinawa, Japan. And so I'm just a little tropical island baby at the end of the day. And I need to be, I need a beach every so and a drink and a beautiful man handed me that a beautiful dark man handing me a drink. I'll write y'all novels to the day I die. I mean, I would love that too. The weather right now today, it's tr it's raining, it's cold. Get me on a beach with a tall, dark, handsome man. I would be very, very happy. But you actually mentioned something earlier on. You spoke about villains and their choices and how no one is completely bad. And that leads me quite nicely to my next question. Because as, as I mentioned before, this is very much a character-driven book. And I would like to focus a little bit on Derek. Now, let's be frank, he's a nasty piece of work. 
he commits some horrible crimes, completely unforgivable, especially the, the first, the early kind of chapters. I was like, whoa, okay. But by the end of the book, I, my heart hurt for him. I did feel sorry for him. And this by no means excuses what he did. This by no means am I saying I understand, but it does humanise him a little bit. Do you think it's really important when you're writing these villains that you do humanise them? Yes, of course. You know, and I take a a bit of offence. I don't think that Derek is unforgivable. I don't think anyone is unforgivable. I'm Catholic, so I don't believe in that. I, I do believe that every person is created in the image of God, and that no one was created evil. <laughs> I don't believe that. Derek wouldn't have done the things he did to Joan if they hadn't been done to him. <laughs> and how is he, as a child, supposed to parse that out when his father, this is the person who brought him into this world, is hurting him? I have a lot of sympathy for Derek. I do. Because hurt people hurt people. And he was a child. I don't think he knew no better. Personally, Memphis is also a rough city. We don't have a lot of resources for young black male youth here. You know, a lot of folk I went to high school with in jail. A lot of folk I went to high school with dead. Like, just to be, like, they not here. It's a rough, it's a beautiful city, but it's also a rough city. And black men in this city... Black boys in the city often are faced with making gang initiation choices and challenge. That's just how it is. Derek knew he wasn't going to be nobody in school. He knew he wasn't going to be no doctor or no artist. He knew that. What else was he to do? He found fa- in a house full of women. He found family with a pumpkin in them and some male uh, figures in his life. His daddy didn't care <laughs> or knows so. I don't know. I have a, have a bit more sympathy for Derek than um, a lot of the readers, I feel, do. And that's a little sad. I had more Derek chapters, you know, from his point of view, but we decided to take those out because it's not, I don't think it's necessary to the crux of the story. I think how Joan forgives him is more pertinent than anything else, than even what he did. As a Catholic, I wanted to explore the realms of forgiveness after Dylan Roof walked into that AME church and killed all the black folk. One of the daughters of the slain got up on the stand on trial and said, I forgive you. The strength and beauty of black women. I was moved in that moment. And I said, wow, what is forgiveness? What does that mean? And how come this woman is more woman than any of us will ever be? I was blown away by her majesty in that moment. And I still struggle with it. I'm not sure if I would be that forgiving. Someone took my mama. But the fact that she was and that she is, I think is a beautiful thing. And I wanted Joan to experience that. And that's it. That's why I wrote it. And perhaps the words that I use to describe Eric's actions were perhaps strong, but they do reflect the people that I spoke to have read the book. They reflect their opinions and their thoughts on, on Derek. When you were writing him and when you chose to take out his chapters, 
were you aware that that's how he would perhaps be received? Because we are, we're not God. We're not as loving, as forgiving as our maker. So human beings, they would read the things that he did and they won't be as easy to forgive. Um, the strength of that woman that you just mentioned, I don't know if I would be able to do that. So were you aware that people would receive your characters the way that they have? I didn't care. <laughs> In some ways, this is my book. This is my expression. Y'all can take it or leave it. This is my art. I stand behind it and beside it and alongside it and in front of it. And this is my child. Like this, I birthed this. This came with blood and sweat and tears. Y'all will never guess that. Could never know. And I think I did one hell of a job personally. So no, and in many ways I didn't, I did not, I don't think about, I'm going to be honest. I really don't think about reviews. I don't read them. This is going to sound horrible and vain, but I don't think about readers so much. I think about creating a beautiful piece of art and leaving like any visual artist does. I think of this as my Mona Lisa. The artist isn't there watching everybody look at it all the time. Like he left. He's like, okay, I got, I have to do something. I have to produce something else now. And so that's how I feel. This is my mantra, my motto. I come back to it over and over, but it says, we younger Negro artists who create now intend to express our individual dark skin selves without fear or shame. If white folk are pleased, we are glad. If not, it doesn't matter. We know we are beautiful and ugly too. The Tom Tom laughs and the Tom Tom cries. If black folk are pleased, we are glad. If not, <laughs> their displeasure doesn't matter either. We build our temples for tomorrow, strong as we know how. And we stand upon the mountain, free within ourselves. Langston Hughes wrote that in 1926. And I think it very much still is applicable. It's my mantra for my writing. Memphis is my individual dark-skinned expression of self. I stand upon the mountain, free within myself. And I'm trying to build my next novel, my next temple, strong as I know how for tomorrow. And to create good black stories. That's it. Just to tell a well-rounded story with black folk in it. <laughs> That's my like rubric in my life. That's my balance. And if I can do that, and again, do that well, write those beautiful, true sentences, make sure that I'm getting to the meat of it and that my meter is beautiful, then I sleep well at night, I do have to say. And again, I know very well that I'm going to get up the next day and a beautiful dark man is going to hand me some coffee on a beach somewhere. So it's a kind of life. No complaints. No complaints at all. So I know that we've spoken a little bit about the heaviness and the traumatic events of this book. So I want us to talk a little bit about the rays of sunshine for me in this book. And that was particularly in the relationship between Myron and Hazel. I was just like, oh just gorgeous just absolutely gorgeous although I didn't I didn't see I wanted more I definitely wanted more of their relationship but it was nice to see that glimmer of light in the book how important is it for you as the writer to write moments of black joy in your stories it is important I really wanted to show I couldn't think of a black book in the western canon in which a black man wasn't abusive like, I'll wait, name one. I don't know. In the color purple, we have Mr. 
and their eyes were watching God. I forget his name, but he hit her. He would hit her often. Beloved. I, I like I just don't know the bluest eye. There's rape and incest. Like I just didn't know of a black man who's like just good. Just a good black man. And there are good but like I come from them. Like I see them every day. Like my brother, my dad, my papa is like my uncles. Like actually I was really moved by a poem by Claudia Ranking in her Citizen, where she the last line is like, it's something about a subway and a little boy gets pushed by a white man on the subway and his mother is there holding his hand. And she says, the thing is, the son of a bitch kept walking. And I wanted him in that moment to realize this boy that he that he was seeing, that he's a human being. And she said the beautiful thing, the last line of it is so beautiful and moving. She said the most beautiful thing is that this army of men stood up behind me like newfound brothers and uncles. And I love that. Like we do have, I come from so many good uncles and brothers. Like they are, there are so many good black men out there. And so that's why I really wanted to make Myron, Myron, like, you know, I wanted to model him after my grandfather who did come back from the war and build a house and provide for his family. And I think that's the most beautiful thing on earth. That's what men all make, regardless of race, should do like just provide and you know be there be supportive build a home together but i just really wanted that some of that black love like there's something about i'm sorry but black love it'd be hidden different it do there's something about it i love a black love story like it's just it's just better it'd be yeah like it'd be on it's so nice <laughs> it's just so nice and I really, too, as an author, didn't want people to say that I hate black men, that we I bash black men, or I wanted a book that celebrated black men. And I even very much love Jax. Like, he's still one of my favorites, too. He's very complex, but he does provide for his family now. He does. Miriam turns down his money. She, you know, she's like, no, I'm going to do this on my own, which I think is brilliant and special and her, her showing real agency. But he does have, a, he loves his children. Like he's a failed partner. But I think too, the war had something to do with that. That wasn't all him. He comes from a very violent background. South side of Chicago is not an easy place to come from. That's where my other part of my family's from. So he did what he could with the resources this country gave that black man. The military does not offer a therapy I know if you go to a therapist more than a few times, you can't even be active duty military in our country anymore. It's just to seek help. So, you know, it was critique on mental health in a way. The doctor scene, too, was a very much a critique on how black folk get treated by the healthcare system in this country. So I feel as if, if Jax had had some real help, he could have been a great, great father, provider, husband, but for the pitfalls of war and how we treat veterans when they come back to this country. So uh, my heart goes out to Jax. My heart goes out to Derek. I just wanted to show that this country does not provide for for people who look like me. So if folk do get mad at the characters, get mad at the get mad at the situation you find them in and do better. You know, this is a critique on all of my country, especially, but do better. Don't have folk be put in these situations. Like, why? Why is Derek having to choose between gang initiation and math in school? Like, why is that a choice for a 15-year-old boy to be, even be making? 
that's really what I want to say with my quote unquote villains. But yeah, I, I loved the scenes of Black Joy. My uh, beauty shop scenes were, oh, my favorite, right? And just so easy to, easy to write about. It seems like we both have braids right now. So we've been, we've both been in a shop like hours just sitting there like recently. So you like, wait, you said six hours? Oh, girl, you know, okay, I suggest just to throw this out there, I very much suggest to you and to all my black girls, listen to sisters, get crochet. Like, it's it's too much. I can't be sitting there seven, eight hours. Like, I don't even like to get my nails done because that takes an hour. I'm real lazy, y'all. Like, I need to be writing. I like to be at home. I can't do this beauty stuff all day. Get crochet. You'll be in and out in an hour and a half. I don't think I've actually tried crochet, so maybe I'll try that next time. But I do love knotless braids, though. I just love the way that they look. They just remind me of, like, just my Nigerian heritage. I just I just love them. Very final question, because I know that time is far spent. I must say, I absolutely love the cover. Um, I know that this is audio, so people cannot see, but I'm actually holding the UK version of Memphis, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. Even the US one, which is the blue one, gorgeous as well I just wanted to know do you have much input into the cover because I I actually don't know what goes into choosing a cover things like that so could you tell us a little bit about that yeah so the paintings behind me are the same artist so her name is Reina Noriega she lives in Miami she's a great southern artist I love her work as you can see my whole home I in my bedroom I have two of her portraits as well and so I followed her on Instagram like years ago maybe five years ago and I sent her a message even before my book was done saying you have to do my book cover and she said who are you okay fine whatever but yeah I really push for her to do the like she was one of my favorite artists and I think Joan would be happy with her and her, like, style. And so I just really wanted something Joan would be proud of. And I made damn sure, even for my U.S. cover, who Sabrina Khadija did. And it's a beautiful, beautiful cover, too. But I made damn sure that Black women visual artists did both. Like, there is no way a white woman <laughs> would do the cover. Of, you know, how dare, you know, what? And I had some pushback on that. The first artists I was given were white. And I just I just sat there like, what? <laughs> no, no publishing world. Mm-mm, tsk, tsk. Not today. Not with me. I'm from North Memphis and I let them know. You know, like they they realized I was black that email. If they didn't know before, they knew then. They were like, ooh, she, ooh, Lord. No, I sent them back. I said, ain't no way on this earth that God put me on some white woman going to do the cover of Memphis. Have you lost your damn mind? I went off on all them. Ooh, the emails, the emails that day. I was hot. <laughs> I was hot that day. Woo. Woo. That was fun. And so then we never had that conversation again. We never had that issue. And, you know, I just told my team, we have to release this book in the most blackity blackest of black. I understand that y'all don't know what that is. Google it. I made them all watch Hustle and Flow. Like, honestly, like they all had to sit. I said, you have to watch Beyonce's Lemonade. I gave them homework. I was like, I know some of y'all ain't black. So, like, you have to understand where I'm coming from. So I gave them homework. 
to do. And I just said, yeah, we have to do this as if Auntie August is looking at us like, <laughs> you know, and that's how I make my decisions strategically, honestly, in this publishing world, which is very white. I just need to always be my authentic Memphis black self. And that does come across <laughs> And everything, I think, down from emails to interviews, you know, I just always want to be comfortable and to be authentically and unapologetically black. And there needs to be space for that in this world. White folk can be uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for us to walk into these white spaces, to know that something like 65% of the books published in my country are written by white women. Why? Aren't y'all sick of reading the same damn World War II love story over and over again? No. Okay. <laughs> Good on you then. Like, I'm reading newspaper articles, magazine articles saying that, I'm not going to say who, but the writer of our generation is some white woman. I said, I don't even know her. Like, who? who? The writer of my generation is not some white lady just because they made her books into a Hulu series. Like, that doesn't make you the writer of a generation. I think a writer of a generation it should be queer. I think a writer of a generation, you know, it should reflect the times. Nina Simone said that and it's the duty of an artist to reflect the times in which they find themselves. And I find myself in a violent, turbulent country right now. And so I, I'll write like that until I don't. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. 
We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.